1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. During the Cold War, the reputation of Soviet spies was nothing short of terrifying. The KGB was everywhere, anywhere. Russia's security services have been dining out on that perception since then, But the war in Ukraine reveals just how far they've fallen. And it is as country music a story as you can imagine, the coal miner's daughter who surprised herself by becoming the most successful female country star in history. Our obituaries editor reflects on the life and the long career of Loretta Lynn. But first, For months, the world has been getting a drip feed of what went on behind the scenes at America's Capitol on January 6th last year, each revelation more dramatic or damning than the last. Yesterday, the committee investigating the Capitol riot released video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other lawmakers who had sought safety that day. Ms. Pelosi called Virginia's governor, Ralph Northam, scrambling to get National Guard troops deployed to quell the violence.
2: Hogan. Uh, but I still think you probably need the okay of the the federal government in order to come into another jurisdiction.
1: As she's speaking, she's watching a television showing the melee in progress.
2: Oh my gosh, they're just breaking windows. It's It's just horrendous, and all at the instigation of the President of the United States.
1: Surprisingly, perhaps, this wasn't the most dramatic moment in yesterday's proceedings. That came from Representative Liz Cheney, who called for one more key figure in the investigation.
2: We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. So this
0: afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony
2: under oath from Donald John Trump in
1: connection... In what was supposed to be a wrapping up, the committee unwrapped a new front in its work, but it's up against the clock and the past recalcitrance of their new star witness.
3: Unlike previous hearings of the January 6th committee, which have focused on specific witnesses and details, this supposedly final one was really an overview. The hearings have been going on for a while, The first one was back in July. So this was an attempt really to catch people up and summarise what happened on January the 6th and put all the evidence into a broader context.
1: John Prudeau is our United States editor.
3: This, Jason, has always been something of a made-for-TV event. This final hearing was postponed because of Hurricane Ian. Members of the committee really wanted as many people to watch this final hearing as possible. And it ended with a big flourish, the subpoena for Donald Trump to appear before the committee. Before
1: we get into the subpoena stuff, let's talk about what new evidence was presented yesterday.
3: Well, there's always been a debate, Jason, among Trumpologists over whether Donald Trump was so removed from reality and so deluded that he actually thought that he'd won this election or whether, in fact, he knew that he'd lost and was behaving in a much more cynical way. And there was plenty of evidence presented yesterday, that he did, in fact, know that he'd lost and had privately admitted that he'd lost. Elaine Luria, who's a Democrat who represents a district in Virginia, said that Donald Trump continued to make these false claims, even though they were directly at odds with what Donald Trump knew.
0: Donald Trump maliciously repeated this nonsense to a wide audience over and over again. His intent was to deceive. President Trump's plan. There were
3: also some other details. We found out that the Secret Service had received tips about expected violence on January the 6th and, in particular, had received pretty specific threats regarding the Vice President, Mike Pence. Some new footage showed House and Senate leaders of both parties trying to solicit help during the attack, calling governors, seeing if they could send in troops to help, all the while Donald Trump was doing nothing. And then there was one other interesting detail in there, which was that Donald Trump seems to have ordered all American troops to withdraw from both Afghanistan and Somalia days after losing re-election. That's pretty interesting for a couple of reasons. A, I don't think that's the kind of thing you do if you sincerely thought that you won. And B, given the chaos that followed in Afghanistan and Kabul, when the Biden administration withdrew troops rather quickly. That's just an sort of interesting counterfactual to think about, if that had been going on at the same time as Donald Trump attempting to cling to power and the insurrection at the Capitol. And moving
1: on to the subpoena, this was supposed to be the last chapter of the committee's work, and now it seems like we've opened another one here.
3: Yes, that's right. They said that more than 30 aides or Trump allies pled the fifth when they were asked to submit to questioning. And so, because they didn't get enough cooperation, the only way they could really answer the questions they're trying to get to are to get to Trump himself.
2: That's why we want to take this step in full view of the American people, especially because the subject matter at issue is so important and the stakes are so high for our future and our democracy. And so...
3: As you say... This is a strange one, Jason. This was meant to be the final hearing, but it opens up this question of whether it is or not. It's also the case, I think, that it's the kind of plot twist that the people who've been planning the hearing seem quite keen on.
1: Okay, so what's the next episode of this made-for-TV event then?
3: Well, so this is where it gets interesting. People who are subpoenaed by House committees are legally obliged to attend and submit themselves to questioning. They don't always do so, immediately. We had a case recently of Steve Bannon initially refusing to testify before a House committee. So the likeliest thing here, I think, is that Donald Trump will say, no, I'm not going to come. And then it's up to the Justice Department to determine whether or not he should be prosecuted for ignoring that subpoena. Now, normally, that kind of legal process takes quite a long time. And the politics here matter, the timing matters, because we have the midterm elections in November, Republicans quite likely to win a majority in the House, then to be in a majority in January, at which point they could just cancel the subpoena and start investigating Hunter Biden.
1: And as you say, the timing does matter here with the midterms coming up. How much of this do you think moves the needle on those elections?
3: The hearings haven't moved the polls significantly, so far as we can tell. But I think that's a slightly unfair test. And I think there's a way in which January the 6th, the fallout and the work of the committee does show up in these midterm elections. It's a slightly roundabout way, Jason. But Donald Trump still enjoys wide support from Republican voters and from lawmakers. And he's used that influence to pick candidates, to endorse candidates in the Republican primaries. Many of those candidates, because they are so closely associated with Donald Trump, look like they may lose in very winnable seats. And so that, in some ways, I think is sort of damaging to him in a way that reflects the toxicity of Donald Trump after January the 6th. And the second thing I'd say, Jason, which is more gloomy, is that Donald Trump spent so much energy undermining the result and coming up with conspiracy theories that we now have a lot of people running in statewide offices where they will have some influence over how future elections are administered, who are signed up to the big lie that Donald Trump actually won the election and had it stolen from him. And so that's an alarming prospect.
1: But more pointedly on the question of what Mr. Trump knew and when and what he did or did not do, it doesn't look like this whole process is going to get to the bottom of that with people stonewalling, people claiming the fifth, an expectation that Mr. Trump himself won't show up. It is worthwhile asking, has this been worth all of the effort?
3: I would say it has been worth all of the effort. It hasn't perhaps had the political effect that some people hoped, but I still think it's been very important as an exercise in transparency and investigation and an exercise in putting as many people as possible on the record about what happened. So I think this commission has a significance and a weight to it that you can't just measure in terms of electoral outcome. I'd also add that it's been an opportunity... For Liz Cheney, the Republican congresswoman from Wyoming in particular, to demonstrate a kind of political courage, which we don't see that often in America. And so even though it's possible to look at this and say, well, what was the point of this whole thing? Donald Trump's not going to appear. He'll ignore the subpoena. I think that's taking too cynical an approach.
1: Well, color me cynical after seeing what we saw at the Capitol on January 6th. Do you not think that the absence of a satisfying conclusion for anyone really has serious onward knock-on effects for American democracy and how it's run?
3: I'd like to be able to cheer you up on that, Jason, and say you're being too cynical. But actually, of course, I share your concern. It would have been better if the committee had managed to clear things up in a way that we could confidently look at and say, this makes a repeat of January 6th much less likely and everyone's been held to account. I don't think that's true. However, what you can say from the committee's work is that at least if Donald Trump is on the ballot again in 2024, voters will have all the information before them. And if they choose him, even after what happened last time around, they will know what they're getting.
1: John, thanks as ever for joining us.
3: Thanks, Jason.
0: Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world, and a big mystery. I'm Su Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime, and the lessons he learned. Now, he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In a declassified CIA film from the 1960s, the agency's former director, Alan Dulles, compares America's intelligence gathering with that of the Soviet Union.
2: The KGB is one of the most sinister organizations that ever was organized. Are they any good? Are the Russians good at this? Oh, yes. Oh, my, yes. You take some of their operations, they're classic. Because they have a marvelous apparatus.
1: The KGB was renowned, notorious even, high-level spy rings in the West, and a knack for knocking off defectors abroad. It was the stuff of spy novels, and the spy novelists ran with it. An ex-KGB man actually made it to post-Soviet leadership, President Vladimir Putin. But the intelligence failures revealed in Mr. Putin's war on Ukraine suggest that the security service's Cold War reputation needs to come down a notch or two.
4: When the KGB dissolved in 1991, It reappeared almost immediately. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. There was the FSB, which was the secret police, effectively, the domestic service. There was the SVR, the foreign intelligence agency that went abroad and did the spying. And then there was the GRU, a military intelligence agency that had endured in one form or another since 1918. And these three services view themselves as part of that long, glorious lineage of Tsarist, then Soviets, then Russian spies going all the way back to the nineteenth century, playing the great game and fighting the Cold War. But they're coming out of the war in Ukraine with that reputation looking really, really shaky.
1: How has the security services role played out in Ukraine?
4: Well, take the FSB. This is a domestic agency, but actually it has responsibility for Ukraine because, it tells you something about the way Russia sees Ukraine as a kind of part of its own empire. The FSB was charged with spying in Ukraine and finding out Ukrainian secrets, and it was charged with protecting Russian secrets. It basically screwed up both of those things completely spectacularly. So, for example, the Americans and British got a hold of Russian war plans, as we now know, and publicly advertised them. They said the invasion is coming.
2: We have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week, in the coming days, we believe that they will target Ukraine's capital Kiev, a city of 2.8 million innocent people.
4: And indeed, it was responsible for those plans in the first place. It was the one that was telling Putin, if you invade Ukraine, it'll go brilliantly. So intelligence failure was part of why this catastrophic war was launched in the first place. And the FSB and to some extent the GRU, I think, has a lot of responsibility for that.
1: And why is that then? If, if they have this fearsome reputation, how do they get it so wrong?
4: Partly just bad intelligence. They were talking to people in Ukraine who agreed with them. Part of it was chauvinistic views of Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's not a real country. It's a, a fake country that the Bolsheviks invented. It'll fall apart when you push it. And Putin believed all of that stuff. But by and large, we saw an intelligence service that I think ultimately has prioritized lots of other things over actual spying. So it's good at disinformation, sabotage, subversion, propaganda, election interference, even assassination, right? We've seen attempted assassination of uh, former Russian intelligence officers in the UK and others on a number of other occasions. But actually, stealing secrets? Well, this was something they turned out not to be terribly good at.
1: So how did they fall so far Then they did earn that fearsome reputation in the first place?
4: When you talk to Western intelligence officers who spent their careers sparring with their Russian counterparts in, you know, shady European backstreets, they all acknowledge that Russian intelligence is still formidable. It has enormous scale, and it's relentless. They take risks, they're very bold, and they have pockets of excellence. But I think what's happened over the years is that they've become incredibly corrupt and venal. So, for example, uh, I was told about one unit in the GRU where officers were stealing the salaries they were supposed to be paying the agents they recruited. Right. We all know, I think it was Graham Greene's novel, Our Man in Havana, where the agent fabricates false intelligence based on vacuum cleaner plans and flogs it up the chain as being incredibly valuable intelligence. Well, this is intelligence officers from Russia basically culling stuff off the Internet, sending it to the Kremlin. And even worse, all the bad news that the Kremlin doesn't want to hear is weeded out. We see in other FSB divisions is something called the Fourth Service. This is a division responsible for economic security, which means they basically put officers and agents into banks and companies and corporations to keep an eye on them. And this is an opportunity to basically skim off huge amounts of money. The Russian intelligence services have become incredibly corrupt. One former FSB officer I spoke to, Jason, compared it to Game of Thrones. He said there was constant infighting, constant rivalry, and that's going to affect the work of an intelligence service.
1: So to your mind, the big structural problem here is simply corruption.
4: It's not the only problem. Intelligence agencies all around the world have to reckon with the digital age, right? They can't send an intelligence officer undercover into a country under two different aliases because they're going to get caught with biometric border controls. Your fingerprints will show you up. Facial recognition might show you up. Russian intelligence has been very slow at adapting to that digital age. For example, we saw back in the spring, the names of large numbers of FSB and GRU officers were exposed because they were having food delivered to the headquarters of their services on a Russian food delivery service under their names. This is really sloppy stuff, right? Western agencies make mistakes, but they're not making these mistakes. In addition to that, the pressure on these officers is also showing in other ways the West responded to the invasion of Ukraine by expelling huge numbers of Russian intelligence officers from European embassies. That put pressure on a type of Russian officer that we call an illegal. These are people who are sent into another country to live potentially for their whole lives under a false identity. And what's happened in the last seven months is that the loss of all these regular officers and embassies is putting pressure on the illegals who would normally play it very cool to expose themselves, to take risks. And they are getting caught as a result. And that's a huge problem because Russian intelligence just doesn't have huge numbers of these.
1: So is anyone inside the Russian regime sort of paying the costs for these failures in the way that we see generals being sacked and people being disappeared?
4: Short answer is no. There have been some sort of low level changes. No heads of agencies have lost their jobs. And I think it's important to understand that reflects their prestige and status in the Russian system. Vladimir Putin is a former KGB officer himself. The people around him are former KGB officers. There's the Russian concept of the Soloviki, the securocrats, the sort of spy spymasters and, and security officials who run the state. It's not that they serve the state, it's that they are the state. And Putin doesn't always trust them, but he's not going to pick a fight with them just at the moment his regime is facing its biggest challenge in 20 years. In fact, after the explosion of the Kerch Bridge on October 8th, we actually saw Putin put the FSB in charge of that.
1: And so in that sense, that that grand history, that spooks of all spooks that we remember from decades ago, we should just throw that
4: idea away? Well, I love the novels of John le Carre, for example, and his famous Russian spy master is Carla, a sort of omniscient, incredibly formidable foe to British intelligence. But it's important to remember that reputation was partly a function of the spectacular successes that Soviet intelligence enjoyed in the 1920s and 1930s, back when communism was seen as a kind of attractive European ideology, an alternative to fascism. You had all the recruits like Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five. Russian intelligence, I think, has been living off the fat of that era, and even the professionalism of the Cold War is being corrupted. The, the phrase used by John Sores, a former head of MI6 when I spoke to him, was like a gangrene on top, and I think it is eroding and chipping away at the reputation of those famous literary Russian spies of the Cold War
1: that's only going to lead to more of a hollowing out, right? There's no incentives in that picture for anything to get better. This only gets worse.
4: I think it depends on how you define get better, because from the Kremlin's perspective, if they're still able to assassinate their opponents abroad, if they're still able to cause mayhem in an American election, if they're still able to spread disinformation in European media, and ultimately, if they are still able to do their most important job of all, which is keep Putin in power... Then all of the other screw ups might not matter so much. And so we have to remember the way they see intelligence isn't always the way that we see intelligence.
1: Shishong, thanks very much for joining us.
4: Thanks, Jason.
2: Hello, this is Loretta Lynn, and my hometown is Butcher Holler, Kentucky. Yeah, I'm proud to be a coal miner's daughter. I remember well the well where I drew water. When Loretta Lynn was a little girl, she used to sing her baby brothers and sisters to sleep.
1: Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor.
2: She used to sit on the porch swing in their cabin in Butcher Hollow in Kentucky. The wonderful voice of Loretta Lynn was soon to become known far beyond those hills. She became America's most successful female country music star. She had 16 number one hits in the country music chart, and she also sold 45 million records. And she was always very surprised by this because she reckoned that the people back home wouldn't think she was very much at all. So she was not really a great musician and never learned to read music, but she could certainly put a song across. And a lot of that was due to her training and growing up, hearing the local Appalachian songs. Because all she was was a poor coal miner's daughter. Going to build me a log cabin on a mountain and this made her extremely shy about going out into the world with her voice. She remembered only once getting a really nice dress, otherwise most of her clothes were made from flower sacks. The children had to share shoes. And all these bits and pieces found their way into perhaps her most famous song, miner's well, I was born to Coal Miner's Daughter. And the... Legend of the coal mine really coloured everything she did after that. She had a backing group and she called them the coal miners. When she got a tour bus to go around the country, she went on touring into her 70s. There was a golden coal miner painted on the side of it. She sang about all sorts of things the men would never think to sing about, such as being tied down to domestic drudgery for days on end. As in a song, one's on the way. The one that was on the way was another baby. Of course, she herself had four children by the time she was 19. They said to have her hair done, Liz all the way to France. There was another song about the unfairness of women's divorce. It was fine to divorce if you were a man and you were still pretty attractive on the marriage market. But if you were a woman you were taken to be no good and fast that was called X-rated then she also sang about the joy of the birth control pill which was introduced when she was at the peak of her singing although she herself ironically never used it hence all the children
3: you'd show me the world
2: And that song was called The Pill. Her peak years of fame also coincided with the women's liberation movement. But she wasn't a fan of that. Nonetheless, because it was happening all around her and she couldn't help but sympathize with the women involved. She sang a song called We've Come a Long Way Baby. She also directed a lot of her songs. In fact, she said 90% of them at her husband. His name was Oliver Lynn. He was a local boy. She met him at a pie social, which was an occasion much loved in the hills where you would bake a pie or a cake. And the boy who bought your pie or cake was the one who got to take you home. She made a terrible pie, she said. It was uh, the worst she'd ever made. But he bought it, and he married her when she was 15. It was an extremely stormy marriage. They fought like cat and dog. He always put her down and called her a stupid hillbilly, that sort of thing. He would beat her if she was at all disobedient. He looked on her really as a child, and she looked on him as a father figure but she could give as good as she got, and she once knocked three of his teeth out. They stayed married until he died in 1996. She clung to him because, in fact, he became her manager, and she felt she owed him everything she was. Having become such a star, she bought an old plantation house, pretty much a whole mill town in Hurricane Mills in Tennessee. And that was where she set up a dude ranch and a museum and all sorts of things that became a sort of Loretta Lynn tribute. And she also built there a replica of the original cabin at Butcher Holler. So she had a terrific complex there, which managed to combine both her fame and celebrity and also her humble beginnings. She never forgot those. In fact, there was not only the cabin from Butcher Holler there, but there was also a pithead coal mine, which was called Loretta Lynn's Coal Mine Number no. 5. It sounded rather like a perfume, and in fact, you could say that coal was the perfume of her life.
1: Anne Rowe on Loretta Lynn, who's died aged 90.
4: All the poopy is pretty bird. She
3: wobbles As she flies She never cuckoo
1: yeah, That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John-Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Caners, And our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
0: 7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.